You know what? I'm going to have you stand for the reading of the word today. And I'm going to have them put it on the screens on the side. And I want you to, with a robust voice, I want you to lift your voice and read with me this passage from Galatians, just four verses. Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4. Would you read it? But when... Is that encouraging to you today? Now, <clears throat> you know what's going to happen in the next few minutes. I'm going to unpack this, at least a couple of verses of it. It's probably all I'll get done. Uh, no, I'm not in Luke chapter 2, and that's what usually the expectation on this day. I think Pastor Shader did a marvelous job with that last week. But I want to, I'm going to read it one more time. Let, let me read it just to be sure um, that you've caught the idea and that you open your heart to this passage and then, then allow me the privilege of unpacking just a little bit of it. But when the fullness of the time, would you say that phrase, the fullness? When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. Say that word. Redeem. Say it again. Redeem. Is there anybody in the house today that's redeemed? Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> in the discourse given by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, we hear him in verse 35 of Acts 20, we hear him remind the Christian leaders of the words of Jesus that it is more blessed to give than to receive. But this is Christmas. And during this time of the year, even the most grouchy Ebenezer Scrooge among us, do we have any in the house? To, no, don't raise your hand. Even the Grinch likes to receive a gift. We all like to open a gift. We all like to unwrap a gift. And some of us will even, I've seen it happen, pick up the gift and shake it to try to guess ahead of time what's in it. I've always wondered why someone did that. Just open it and you'll see what's in it. And then the other thing we do is while, while we're in the process of opening the gift, depend upon who wrapped it and how much tape they use and how involved it is, while you're opening the gift, most of us are going through that process of hoping we will like it, whatever it is. How many know I'm telling the truth? And then if you're like me, you're also hoping that they will not see your face if you don't like whatever it is. As you, 
Thank you, thank you. But Bethesda, one Christmas morning, God sent us the very best that he had in the person of Jesus Christ. He did not come just to be a moral example, though he was. He did not come just to be a philosophical leader, though he was. But he came to ransom us. He came, he left the splendor to redeem us, to save us from our sin. Talk to me, somebody. So I'm wondering today if there's any instruction from the Word of the Lord about how we are to unwrap this gift that God has given us. Paul tells us clearly, and I love his, his verbiage, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that this gift is an indescribable gift, an unimaginable gift, which God sent to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen one more time to these just first verse, the first verse and a half of our, of our text, Paul's letter to the Galatians. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. There was a family who had a young daughter. This daughter was stricken at the young age of 16 with leukemia. The girl's name was Marissa. The situation was particularly challenging because her life expectancy was no more than five years. The parents, his name was Abe, her name was Mary. They had two children. They had this daughter, Marissa, and they had a younger son named Aaron. Marissa, being stricken with a rare form of leukemia, needed a bone marrow transplant in order to live. Her younger brother, Aaron, was tested, and he was found to not be a match for her. So as you can imagine, the situation looked very, very bleak. Inasmuch as it is typically a, a sibling who is able to provide the bone marrow needed in this type of circumstance. But there were no other siblings, just those two children, and the one brother was not a match. Further complicating matters was the fact that the father had undergone a vasectomy because two children was all that the mother had wanted. But they needed a, a bone marrow match from a sibling. Their daughter was dying, the clock was ticking. But these loving parents would not give up hope in finding a match for the desperately needed transplant of bone marrow. Therefore, they had to undo some things, and then God had to line up some things in order for their daughter to be saved. Abe, the father, decided to reverse the procedure he had undergone, but there was only a 40% chance that that might work. And then the mother decided she would become pregnant one more time, but at the age of 43, there was only a 10% chance that that might work. And then if the child would be born, the likelihood of that child being a match for the much-needed bone marrow was only 50%. But the family was desperate, and they were willing to do anything and everything to save the life of their daughter. So Abe had his procedure reversed, and that worked. Mary, the mother, at age 43, became pregnant, and that worked. To that family was born another precious little daughter who was a perfect match. But that daughter had to grow up. 
first. They had to wait for the child to grow up and be old enough in order for the transplant to take place. So the boy Aaron was not a match. Abe, the dad, had to reverse his procedure. The mother had to become pregnant. All the stars had to line up just perfectly. But in the fullness of time, that young girl, Marissa, was saved through that transplant. So what's that got to do with you and me? Here I was, lost and condemned to die, on my way to an eternal hell. Abraham was born, but Abraham was not a match. Isaac was born, but Isaac was not a match. Jacob was born, Moses was born, Joshua was born, but none of them were a match. Ezekiel and Daniel, Hosea and Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Obadiah, Malachi, all of them, John the Baptist, nobody was a match. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth, oh, somebody needs to hear this this morning. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and I received my transfusion, and the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all unrighteousness, cleanses me from all of my sin. Blessed be the name of the Lord forever. Just like everything had to line up in that family's life. You and I had to also experience this idea of in the fullness of time. It was the right time for Jesus to be born. Jesus was born at exactly the right time. The time was right religiously. Religiously, they were out from under the Old Testament's sacrificial system. They were out from under their idolatrous practices that they had learned actually in the promised land. They were now religiously ready for the birth of the Messiah. The time was not only right religiously, but the time was right culturally because Greek was the dominant uh, culture and also Greek was the dominant language. Everyone could understand the nuances of language because of the cultural dialect of the Greek language. The time was right religiously, the time was right culturally, but the time was right politically because Rome was in power. And Rome had three aspects of their culture which made it the right time for Christ to be born. First of all, there was the Pax Romana, which is Roman peace, whereby uh, Rome mixed enough freedom with enough control to maintain itself as a world power. The Pax Romana made it possible for all men everywhere to hear the gospel. You should study it. And then there was the Lex Romana, which was basically another way of saying Roman law, whereby the laws which Rome had set up made it possible for a Roman citizen like Paul to preach the gospel without interruption. The timing was perfect. And any invo anyone involved in evangelism will understand the Rio Romana, which is another way of saying the Roman road. All roads lead to Rome was what that meant, the Rio Romana. Many of you will be familiar with that evangelism tool that most of us have used called the Roman road. 
You and I have always thought it was a, a, the little track that we used was called the Roman Road because it, all the scriptures used in it were from uh, the book of Romans. And while that's true, all the verses are from Paul's writing to the Romans, it's also called that because of the significance of Rome's highway system, which for its day and time was quite elaborate uh, and, and, and quite something for, for them. Thus we have the term Rio Romana, whereby the gospel is spread throughout the whole world because of Rome's highway system, much like the establishment of, of our interstate system here in the United States. Rome built roads where everyone could travel. So the gospel could get out everywhere because of the Pax Romana, because of the Lex Romana, because of the, the Rio Romana. All this to say that Jesus was born in the fullness of time. He was born at the right time religiously, as I said. Sacrificial system, idolatrous practices, gone. He was born at the right time culturally, Greek culture and language unifying the people, perfect timing. He was born at the right time politically, a time of peace with proper laws established and everything in place for the proliferation of the gospel. Jesus was born at just the right time, which leads me to say this to us today. You know what, church? God knows how to make everything happen at just the right time. Not only in the birth of his son, which is obviously powerfully designed, intricately designed, but he knows how to make everything happen in your life at just the right time. Can I get a witness here this morning? Whether you believe it or not, you and I were born at just the right time. It is a sovereign God who determined the day of your birth, and God alone. You were not born too early. You were not born too late. You were not born to the wrong parents. You were not born in the wrong country. You were not born in the wrong culture. Everything needed for you to be you happened in the fullness of time. It was at just the right time. Now, I know, and I can often say with you, there are times when it can appear that God is slowing up. It can appear that God is delaying. The answers to our prayers aren't coming quickly enough. We've all probably experienced that. Doors are not opening up fast enough. It can seem like, uh, we, we often say, God can make a way where there seems to be no way. It can seem like ways are not being made quickly enough. But God, in His divine wisdom, and in his sovereignty, knows that to get you to the place he has designed for you, to get you to the destiny in God that you are intended to be at, but if, you, if he gets you there before you're ready for it, it would be to ruin you spiritually. Because if you are not spiritually ready to handle what God is about to do in your life, guess what? You can mess up your entire testimony. Dear friend, what that means is this. And I know you'd rather me find something else to tell you. You have to go through some trouble. You have to. You have to go through some trials. I know you'd like an easy road of comfort and peace and, and uh, laying back and make everything just a smooth ride all the time. I would too, but that's not the way God works. You have to cry in the midnight hour. You have to know what it is to know the darkness of night and not being able to sleep all night. 
because of that which is on your mind, the stress that you're facing, the problems you're facing. You have to suffer some setbacks because you would not be where you are today had it not been for God's perfect timing in your life. Do you believe me today? Your grandmother probably may or not have had any theological training, but I bet she said it to you like this. He may not come when you want it, but he's always right on time. He knew in time what you needed before you were ever even born. God's timing is perfect. Somebody needs to hear that today. God's timing is perfect. The origin of his mission is what I want to talk about just for a moment. We talked about it uh, a couple of weeks ago, last time I was in the pulpit. But it's true that at Christmas time, we often make the mistake of thinking that Jesus got started at Bethlehem. Well, we kind of maybe know something different, but for us and for most of society, if you were to go out here on the street and ask people, you would find out most people think that was the beginning for him. But it is a theological mistake that Jesus just came into being when he was born in a manger at what we call Christmas Day. Yes, it is true that he was born of a woman, but Christmas is not man's idea. The birth of a Savior is not Jerusalem's idea. It's not Bethlehem's idea. It's not the world's idea. Uh, the prophet Isaiah tells us this, a child is born, but a son is given. There's a difference in that. A child was, in fact, born, but before that child was born, God had already given us a son. Jesus wasn't just born in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in the mind of God before man was even created. Can somebody say amen today? Because you're not talking to me at all. You're not helping me a bit. You've got to help me here. Jesus was born in the mind of God before there was a when or a where, before there was a was or a will be. Jesus already was. He was already in the mind of God in eternity past to come and save us at just the right time in the fullness of time. Do not make the mistake of thinking that the existence of Jesus began at the manger. And some people then make the cruel mistake of leaving him in the manger. That may be a sweet and a beautiful scene, and it makes a delightful Christmas card of a precious child lying in a manger. I understand that. It's beautiful. But to leave him in the manger is a mistake theologically. There is a reason he came to be in a manger. Because he had to grow up to become a man and fulfill his purpose in coming. Had he stayed in the manger, you know what? You and I would still be in our sin if he had stayed in the manger. I'm giving you the gospel today, by the way. But he was born in Bethlehem. He was baptized in the Jordan. He performed miracles in the desert place. Even so, none of those are the reason why he was born. They're all wonderful things. Let me take it a bit further. He wasn't just born to heal the sick. He wasn't just born to turn the water into wine. He wasn't just born to take five loaves and two fish 
to feed the multitude, as wonderful as all that is. But guess what, church? He was born for a Friday. Had he stayed in a manger in Bethlehem, you and I would still be headed for an eternal hell today. But one Friday, Jesus paid it all. He paid the price for my sin and for yours. He died on a cruel, rugged cross. But you know what, church? Even that is not the only reason he was born. He wasn't just born for a Friday. But early on Sunday morning, Balcony, are you with me this morning? you got to talk to me here because I don't think you're hearing me. Early on a Sunday morning, he got up and out of that grave with all power and authority in his hand. Blessed be the name of Jesus. I'm going to take it one step further. He wasn't just born for a Friday. He wasn't just born for a Sunday. But today, he is seated at the right hand of God And he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. And in the fullness of time, he will be coming back again to claim his ransom bride for all eternity. Give the Lord praise in this house today. I don't know about you, but my heart cries out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Is anybody with me today? So when is the right time, Pastor Dan? According to Matthew 24, 14, it will be when this gospel of the kingdom is preached to the whole world and every person has had the opportunity to hear the joyful sound that Jesus saves. Then the end will come, the Bible says, and he's coming back for his glorious church without spot or wrinkle, and I'm going to be part of it. Who's going with me today? You know, as I read that passage in Matthew this week. A little thought ran through my head. It may be crazy. You may disagree with me. That's fine. But sometimes I can't help but wonder if we're holding back the second coming of Christ when we don't share the gospel. Because the Bible tells us clearly it will come when every person's had the opportunity to hear that Jesus saves. Or I wonder if we hold back the gospel, if we're guilty of holding back the gospel when we don't make every possible effort to support our missionaries who are in faraway places. Because every, every tribe, tongue, and nation needs to hear that Jesus saves. Jesus came to die for all. Maybe we're guilty of that. All I can say is may God give us grace. I know that we all like to sing, hark the herald angels sing. But what I think we ought to be doing this morning is go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. Over the hills and everywhere. And you know what? I think we become sometimes selective about who we're going to tell. We're going to wait till we get the warm fuzzies or till we feel the anointing or till we feel goose pimples or whatever before we're going to. It doesn't matter. You know who you need to be telling? I'm talking to you. You need to be telling the poor people. You need, and you can tell rich. You can tell fat people like me. You can tell skinny people. We need to be telling Asian people. We need to be telling African people. We need to be telling Hispanic people who's with me today. We need to be telling black people, white people, the young and the old. You know what else? We ought to be telling homeless people. We ought to be telling AIDS-infected people. 
We ought to be telling every sick person, every healthy person. We need to be telling people in our neighborhood. You need to be telling people in your own family. Go tell on a mountain that Jesus Christ is born. It's the origin of his mission. In my remaining time, let me consider the objective of his mission. It's right here in verse number 5 of Galatians 4. To redeem, say the word redeem. To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Redeemed. Redeemed. Few words in our English language are more exciting and significant to the human race than this word redeemed. Redeemed. I I can't even begin to tell you how many songs are flooding into my head right now. I've sung my entire life so many songs about this word redeemed. Our choir sings it. To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were lost. To redeem those who were slaves. To redeem. What does that really mean? The word redeem means to buy in the slave market through the payment of a redemption price. Say that with me, please. To buy. Let me take you quickly. Naomi and Elimelech with their two sons, Malon and Kilian, fled the famine in Bethlehem, and they went to Moab. When they got to Moab, everything was going pretty good for a while, but then Naomi's husband Elimelech died. In the meantime, the two sons, Malon and Kilian, married Moabite girls there in this new land where they were, Orpah and Ruth. You know the story. But then just a few years later, and man, I'm given a 50,000-foot view of this. A few years later, both Malon and Killian died. Her sons died. Her husband's gone. Now her two boys are gone, leaving Naomi alone without a husband, without her sons. Just her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Though Naomi had determined to return to Bethlehem, her hometown in in Judah, she tells her two daughters-in-law, no, you need to go back to to Moab, go to their homeland. And she wishes them well by saying, when you read the text in the book of Ruth, and may the Lord give you the security of another marriage. She was blessing them and, and feeling their pain and their anguish and wanted them to have full, rich lives and to marry again. So when they, they were there at the, wherever they were at the crossroads, it was a bitter, tearful parting. Orpah does what Naomi instructs her to do. She heads on back to Moab, her homeland. And when she leaves her mother-in-law, Naomi, when Orpah leaves her mother-in-law, Naomi, to return to her homeland of Moab, she also walks out on salvation history. That'll become apparent in a moment. But Ruth a pagan girl, also a Moabite girl, said instead to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she said, no, 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 and I I had to go to the King James. You know, I I researched all these scriptures in many, 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 many versions. King James says this. It's the only version I found that says, entreat me not. It had me right there with three words. Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go, (laughs) you old-timers. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be 
my people. And here comes the really, really good part. And your God, Ruth says to Naomi, shall be my God. Naomi and Ruth now head back to Bethlehem. But when Naomi gets, hits the town, the women were excited to see her, but they were saying, is that really Naomi? Oh my goodness, she has aged. Have you seen her? You see, when she left town years before, she was beautiful, attractive, and young. And I, I, can, I, I shouldn't allow my mind to go here, but I can just hear the ladies of the village saying, did nobody tell her about Botox? <laughs> and whatever other things are used. She, that girl needs to have some work done. Is that really Naomi? And you know what she said? She probably heard all that lovely talk. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. You see what Mara means. It's just don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because life has dealt with me and the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. In other words, ladies, I've been through it. <laughs> I've been through it. I've been through some stuff. And we know for sure that she's lost a husband and two sons and who knows what else life had hit her with. But she did say this, I went out full, but I'm coming home empty. That's what her homecoming was like, because all she has left is this one young daughter-in-law named Ruth. But she hears, as she's come back to town, that there's a, something called, a, the Bible calls a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman just simply means relative. Kinsman redeemer. Uh, there's, there's this wealthy relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech, who can possibly help them. And he has a name. His name is Boaz. So Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, she says, girl, come here. Let me tell you how to get that man. Go, go fix yourself up, girl. Get some of that makeup on. Some of that nice perfume, you need to get that on. And when he lies down on the, flesh, on the threshing floor, go lay, down, go lay down by his feet. And when he woke up the next morning, va, 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 voom. <laughs> he saw the beautiful girl, Ruth. And he told the harvesters in the field, hey, um, leave the corner of the field for this fine young lady. Let, let, let her glean whatever's in the corner of the field. And Ruth goes out and works those corners of the field and she comes back with her gleanings. And so about that time, Naomi sets out to find Boaz because she's going, okay, we, we, need to, we need to talk here. <laughs> matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. Now there's some things I need to ask you to remember about this story. Number one, you need to remember that this field they're harvesting belongs to Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. He owns it, and now she owns it. And you also need to remember that there is a, one more person that needs to come into this story. He's a cousin, kind of a longer lost relative. He's a relative of Elimelech who, by virtue of where he is in the family line, he has the rights to this land before Boaz does. Like, so if it's going to be sold, if Naomi decides to sell it, uh, it should go by rights to this cousin before it goes to Boaz. And then also to understand you, this story, you need to know that the way it's all set up, anyone who does buy this land is also required to take Ruth as your wife. 
okay? That's just the way Naomi had the contract all worked out. So this cousin has the right to redeem Ruth. But he, he says that, that that creates a problem for me. And he tells Boaz, if, if, if I do that, it's going to put my own estate in jeopardy, is what he says. And so Boaz goes, oh, I'm so sorry. That's so unfortunate for you. And so Boaz, knowing how the system works and seeing that this other cousin is going to relinquish his rights to buy the land from Naomi and knowing and the beautiful young lady that comes with it, Boaz does what is culturally appropriate. He takes off his sandal to hand it to that cousin, which was the culturally appropriate gesture to publicly validate a transaction. That's how you said they got witnesses around, usually about 10 witnesses, and he takes off his sandal and hands it to the guy. You see, Boaz was saying, if you're not going to redeem Ruth, then let me have her. Let me be her redeemer. And you know the rest of the story. Boaz marries Ruth. Ruth and Boaz had a boy named Obed. Obed had a boy named Jesse. Jesse had a boy named David. And David became the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Why? Because from the beginning of time, from eternity past, God's plan was that he would send Jesus to redeem us. Somebody ought to shout hallelujah. Oh, you're pity-pattering today. That's all you're doing, pity-patter. And the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth is a foreshadow or a type of what Christ would be for us. Blessed be his name. So to redeem means, as we said, to buy in the slave market through the payment of a redemption price. But I got to tell you, there's a moreover here. What do I mean by that? that there's, there's more to this definition. There's a further definition to this word redeem that says this. It's this, to buy for oneself and to forever remove the one bought from the possibly of ever being sold again. Oh, my goodness. In case that hasn't sunk in yet, let me say it to you this way. You have been bought with a price. And the price paid for us makes it impossible for us to ever be resold or sold again. Jesus paid it all. You can never be resold to the one who used to own you. Where's the hallelujah for that? You can never be resold to the one who used to own you. Now, yeah, it's true. You can be manipulated by the devil. You can be stimulated by the devil. You can be motivated by the devil. You can be activated by the devil. But you can never be sold back to the devil because Jesus bought you with the price of his own precious blood. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Blessed be the name of Jesus. And I don't know what your story is today, but I can tell you what mine is. I've been redeemed from the hands of the enemy. I've been washed in the blood of the crucified lamb. My name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And when it's all over, 
I'm going to sing Redemption's sweet song. Hallelujah. Who's going to sing it with me? Because I'm going to need some altos. I'm going to need some tenors. I'm going to need some basses. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tongue on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Hallelujah. Come on, put your hands together and bless the Lord.